We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, Tim, do you mind opening us up in prayer? I feel it's kind of a high privilege for a random visitor to use open prayer. But <laughs> it is a privilege. Lord, I'm thankful for all the history of your grace and soul after soul in this room and uh, for the gathering and its, uh, its encouragements and purposes. And I pray that in reflecting on the marvel of the work given to the uh, Apostle John, I pray that you would uh, direct our attention to that which is most important and by your Spirit make our hearts alive in it. In Jesus' name. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, directing your, our hearts to what's most important, I think, was actually very appropriate in that prayer. Uh, I just wanted to review a little bit of what we've uh, covered in the last few weeks. We've, you know, the first week we introduced the Gospel of John, did a lot of background, kind of who, what, when, where, and why was the, the Gospel written. Last week we got started with the prologue and we got three verses in, so at this rate we should be done in a little over a decade. Um, in all seriousness, uh, the, the prologue is uh, deep and dense, we're going to spend a little bit of time with it. We will uh, be, be picking up speed this week as well as uh, as we continue, but one of the things that we did is we opened last week as we looked through the prologue, and you could probably come up with a slightly different list than, than this, but what, what you certainly will see in the prologue is that there's a lot of information in the prologue about Christ. It's a very Christ-centered or Christocentric uh, prologue. That you know, Jesus Christ is very much the theme uh, of the prologue. And the, the prologue, a, a good way of describing the prologue is that it's an overture to the Gospel of John. What I mean by an overture is that you know, in, in, at the beginning of a good piece of uh, classical music, such as an opera, the composer will kind of briefly introduce the different themes that are going to be developed later on. And, and John is very much doing that in, in his opening. <clears throat> One of the, those themes that we spent quite a while with is logos, uh, which is, is translated as word, but it really means a lot more than that. As I mentioned, we get our English word logic uh, from that, so there's a lot more depth to the Greek meaning. And I think what John really did with, uh, with Logos is he had an idea that would mean quite a bit to both his Jewish and his Gentile audience. There, there's a lot of baggage that, uh, with that word that was good that kind of pointed towards who Christ was that, that John used. But I think if we had to kind of settle on you know, a simple definition of what John means by, by Logos in the, the opening, it would be God's self-revelation that at least catches a lot of uh, what John has in mind. And just in the opening verses, John is really kind of coming out swinging. There's there's a lot that he's uh, you know kind of you know packs into this, but he's saying that you know, Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning, and Jesus Christ was God, and that's one of the strongest, if not the strongest, verse that we have in developing the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, that there is one God of three persons. And that's the the premise that John really wants to convince us of in the rest of the gospel, that, that Jesus Christ is God, and yet he's also fully human. Uh, John is remarkable in many ways. One of the ways that John is remarkable is that the, the picture of Christ is the most divine. Um, in the gospel, he, he really focuses it on Christ's godhood, but he's also, it's also the most human picture that we have of Jesus Christ. So John, I think, does a really good job of, of showing that Jesus Christ is fully God and, and fully man. The, the last thing that we 
one of the, the last thing that I want to review from last week that we covered is that the, the opening very strongly alludes to Genesis 1. They open with the same words in Greek that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to, to open the, the, uh, the book of Genesis. And then there's a lot of similar ideas. In fact, the two topics that we're going to cover next, you know, life and light, are both really central ideas in, in Genesis 1. It is moving. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, third verse, or for, for, sorry, fourth, fourth verse. In him was light, and that life was uh, the light of men. We, we could spend a little bit of time kind of thinking about what life means. And in, in the Genesis account, we, we might start to think, was, is that physical life? And you know, that's certainly true. But if we kind of continue on in the verse, that life was the light of men. I think that, that life is saying something a little bit more. Uh, I think it's really kind of talking about spiritual life. And that, that's the main thing that I think John is getting that, even though uh, he's kind of obviously interacting with, uh, with Genesis 1 as well. What about light? Uh, in what ways is Jesus Christ light? He is holy. Uh, what else? Yeah, yeah. And as we we continue on in the prologue, we're we're going to see that that theme kind of brought out more. But I think that that's one of the the most significant pictures that you know John is kind of using by saying that Jesus Christ is light. We we can't have substantive knowledge about God without God revealing Himself to us. You know, there are things that we can see about God from creation. But it, it's very far from a complete picture. We, we need God to reveal himself. And Jesus Christ is the, the full revelation of God that, that God provides. But th there's more than that. Um, and we'll, we'll see that as we kind of can proceed in the prologue. You know, light, in addition to revealing God, also reveals the world you know, in a, a way that's much more sensible than we would be able to understand it without it. And... If the more that you study history, the more that you see people recognize that the world isn't the way that it should be. But without light, they keep coming up with ways to try to fix it that often cause more harm than good. It's only with you know, the, the light of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is, that we can recognize what is wrong with the world and what, those, what the correct solutions are. Uh, and the solution, of course, is Jesus Christ. We, we need him you know, uh, to be able to, to live as we should. But you know, life, or life and especially light are going to be significant themes in the Gospel of John. Um, you know, John will mention, you know, this happened at night, or and it was night, or you know, this happened at, at daytime. And that isn't just because those events actually happened at night or they happened at daytime. John's pointing that out because you know, light or dark is going to be a theme uh, and you know, an element of, of what's going on at, at that particular time. Like to, to move on, this is a verse that's fairly well known. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a, a word that there isn't a nice English equivalent for. Uh, maybe the best equivalent that I could come up with is grasp. Um, the, the Greek kind of means to lay hands on. And grasp does, if you think about it a little bit, kind of get at something a little bit closer uh, 
you know, to the Greek word. You know, if you grasp something, you, it could mean that you understand it. Um, you know, I, I thought about this, and eventually I kind of grasped what was meant. Um, you know, it could also kind of mean, and th this is closer to the Greek, it could mean you know, to lay hands on something uh, and you know, to either overcome or extinguish it. Grasp doesn't quite have that meaning, but it, the, the Greek version certainly does. <clears throat> and so that makes it a, a challenging verse to, to translate. Is, is it the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, which is what the ESV went with? Is it the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it, uh, which other very good translations have gone with? And another very reasonable translation would be the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not extinguished it. Um, all, of, all of those work. All of those translations can be true. And my personal opinion is that as I look at John, John seems to enjoy when he can kind of have you know, a statement that's true in different ways. And I, I suspect that John recognized that this statement was ambiguous. Commentators all agree that the, the opening of John is very, very carefully crafted. He, he wouldn't have left something ambiguous if you know, he wanted us just to take one meaning that's specific from it. And so I think John recognized that you know, all of these meanings of this particular word work. They, they kind of add richness. And so I, I think taking all of them as what John meant is probably the best way to go uh, here. <clears throat> so that uh, brings us to verse 6. And I, I want to go ahead and just read 1 through 5 and then read 6 through 8 and kind of listen for how 6 through 8 are different than 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might receive him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Uh, five through eight really kind of stand out uh, to me. They're, they're kind of an abrupt change. And you know, a lot of the more liberal commentators will say, well, that's because John is you know, taking a, a hymn and then he's inserting something from a different uh, source and stands out, which I, I don't think makes sense. The overture fits John so well that I don't think it's reasonable to conclude that this wasn't carefully written by John as an introduction to his gospel. But they, they are right, I think, in recognizing that there's a very different feel to, to six through eight. If one through five is you know, very much, uh, it, it, it's sweeping. It, it's talking about you know, God's existence before time. And six through eight is very earthly. You're talking about a physical person you know, named John. Um, I think what John is doing is he's recognizing that you know, if, he, if he only is kind of talking in, in the spiritual terms of one through five, it might be kind of easy to think about this as some sort of spiritual reality, but it's not just that. This is grounded in a physical event, and I think the abruptness of what's going on between one through five and then, then six through eight is intentional on John's part to, showing that, to show us that not only is is this kind of you know, this sweeping spiritual reality, 
but it's also a physical event that really happened. We're going to uh, spend a little bit more time on, on John the Baptist as we proceed, so I'm not going to say very much about those verses. I think I'd like to go ahead and move on to, to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. And I would like to say just a little bit about what, what John might mean by the, the real light or the, or the true light. Um, real might be a little bit better of a translation. And... Here, it, it's helpful to know a little bit about you know, kind of Greek thought as it would have uh, existed in the first century. Plato came up with an idea called ideal forms. And this is something that we're going to be referring back to periodically in John. It's important, I think, in John's thinking. And so it's good that we introduce this now. I'll, I'll be reviewing this periodically. But in Plato's thinking, you know, Plato recognized that the world was imperfect and people were kind of constantly trying to make better and better versions of things. Uh, you can certainly point to my attempts at making a better and better chili. Um, I've tried lots of different recipes, I've, uh, and I, I'm never happy with it. I'm always kind of tinkering with it, trying to get you know, uh, a chili that I'm more satisfied with. Plato would say that someplace, probably outside of this world, there exists perfect chili. <laughs> and doesn't exist in this world, but somehow, subconsciously, I'm aware of the existence of perfect chili. I, I recognize that the chili that I make does not match the ideal form of perfect chili. And that's why I'm, I've got you know, a shelf full of dried chili peppers that I, I use that Katie's always complaining about, that you know, I've, I'm trying you know, different sorts of things like fish sauce in there, and it, it helps. But you know, I'm, I'm recognizing that my chili does not match the ideal form of it. What, what John is saying is you know, there, there is light in this world. Um, you know, later on in the verse, it, it says that John was not the light. El elsewhere, it says that John is a light. And I think what, what John is, is saying is that not do, we, we, don't, we, we do, certainly do see light from John the Baptist, but it's not the real light. The, the sort of light that you get from John the Baptist is a worldly form. Jesus Christ is that ideal form. I think that's what John is kind of getting at by true light. You know, Jesus is the real light. Any other light that we would have in this world would be you know, something um, that is, is imperfect. Yes? Yeah, so we, we certainly... You do need light to be able to, to kind of see the correct way. And that's one way that Jesus is light. I think there, there's certainly more than that. So, you know, in one sense, we're going to talk about John more later, probably in the next study. We might be able to get to, to him today. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. You know, elsewhere in John, John calls him a, a, a shining light. Uh, a, a very bright light, but uh, but Jesus is, is a light that's in a different category. Another word that you can tell is important here is world. It's repeated four different times. This is another word that 
we don't have a good equivalent of in English. Um, so you might be tempted to say, well, maybe the translators would be better off leaving that in Greek and just kind of transliterating the Greek word. And that actually doesn't help us either. Uh, the, the Greek word is where we get our word cosmos. And when we think of cosmos, you know, we tend to think of you know, all the galaxies out there, tend to think of it astronomically. And that, that certainly is one meaning, but that's probably not the meaning of this Greek word cosmos that, that John has in mind. Um, we do use the Greek word in the way that I think John intends it. Uh, the magazine Cosmopolitan would be an example, but it refers to a world system. And in John, cosmos refers to a world system that functions apart from God. There are other meanings to the word, but you know, if you can kind of think world system that functions apart from God, not necessarily planet, uh, which is probably the natural uh, way that we would read uh, world in English. Uh, in, instead, try to think world system that functions apart of God, what, God whenever you see this word in John. And that will, will make, uh, make sense of a lot of verses that can be misinterpreted otherwise. <clears throat> the, the next thing I'd like to take a look at, verse 11, he came to his own. And uh, I'm going to leave people out. The ESV has added it to try to clarify. And I think it's right, but it, it's not there in the original text, which the ESV is usually better about. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That, that really could read two different ways. What might own refer to is if we sort of do as we should do and leave people out? Because John could have added it, and he didn't. Yes. And... Uh, that, that's, I think, what the ESV is pointing us to by, by adding people. Uh, but what, what else might this refer to? Kind of think back to, to you know, how John is interacting with Genesis 1. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah, he, he created this universe. You know, the one person that should belong in the universe is Jesus Christ. And, you know, uh, his, uh, his creation did not receive him. Both of those work, and personally, I would say that John probably left it ambiguous because both of those are true. One of the things that you'll see about the Gospel of John is that John loves irony, and this, this is a, an incredible irony. Or he loves to point out irony. I don't think this is an irony that he likes. <laughs> um, but you know, he, he, he certainly likes to point out an irony like this, that Jesus Christ came to the world that he created, and that world rejected him. He, he came to a people that were specifically, repair, specifically prepared to receive the Messiah. And that people specifically rejected him, uh, more so than, than the world, in fact. <clears throat> and I, I think that's probably why John left that ambiguous. Both of these, of, of these are, are, are true, and I think John wanted us to kind of think about both of these here. Although... If I had to pick one over the other, I think the ESV is probably right to kind of direct us to people. Um, I think John is more referring to the, the rejection of the, the Jewish people of their own Messiah. <clears throat> now, it, it, it's relatively straightforward to understand this verse. It's one thing that you'll appreciate, appreciate about John. John is a very straightforward writer. 
uh, he uses simple sentences. It's usually very easy to understand what he means, although not necessarily always. But you know, the, the content behind this verse, what John is pointing at, you know, the rejection uh, of, of the creator by the creation, the rejection of the Messiah by the people prepared to receive the Messiah is something that I, the more that you think about, the um, more difficult it is to really get your head around that. It, it, you know, it's easy to kind of look at this truth presented in a simple way, but really understanding it is, is very difficult. Uh, and something I think is, is worth spending uh, time just kind of meditating upon. Yeah. I'd like to next look at kind of the exception to that. John is saying that you know, as a whole, the, the sinful world uh, rejected its creator or the people prepared for that by and large, not entirely, but the majority rejected their Messiah. But there, there are exceptions that, that, that do embrace Jesus Christ, do put, put their faith in them. And these people are born not of blood or of the will of the Father nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm going to resist the temptation to really try to focus in on what John means by the, these three things here. We, we could spend time doing that, but I don't think we need to. I don't think it's important to get at exactly what he means. But these are all kind of natural, physical ways that, that someone's born. And John is emphasizing repeatedly in the negative that it's not a physical birth. This is something that comes from God. And so if you kind of break the verse up, the reason that people are born has nothing to do with you know, human will or anything physical. It's from God. John is emphasizing that very clearly. Um, salvation comes from God. Most uh, good commentators will say that John is kind of the most explicitly monergistic, most explicitly Calvinistic of the four Gospels. And we see that, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we see that right here in the prologue. But you know, this is you know, a theme that's going to be developed as we move along. So verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. This is another verse that you know, Tim could probably do a whole sermon series on without too much trouble. We, we could spend a lot of time on it. And I'm going to resist the temptation to do that because the, the gospel is going to unpack this theme further. We, we don't necessarily need to take you know, you know, even a, a survey of, of everything that, that, that's meant here. But there are some ideas that I would like to, to look at in a little bit more uh, detail. So let's kind of take a look at some of the words. If the word became flesh. This is a Greek word that if you studied Romans, you might actually be familiar with. The uh, Greek word is sarx. And meat is another uh, kind of significant overlap with this word. And the, I think the, the way that meat might be a little bit more appropriate is that it would sound closer to meat to Greek ears than, it, than, than flesh does. Um, the, the point that that, that's important is, you know, for one, this is talking about the incarnation. You know, Jesus was not kind of some you know, spiritual entity that floated an inch above the ground. You know, Jesus was a real flesh and blood person. This would, um, 
really jump out of a, a Greek. And John is kind of going out of his way to use a word that would sound, um, if this was an overture, this would uh, be discordant with the, the rest of the overture. Um, you re remember, we're, we're going to talk about this some, but in, in Greek thinking, this, the spiritual realm is good. And the reason that people aren't good is that they're stuck with this evil, tainted, physical matter. And so the idea of a spiritual being who's not contaminated with this matter taking on evil, physical matter that's going to... That would be the, the complete wrong direction in Greek thinking. Um, so it, it would jump out at, at them. And John is intentionally, I think, using a word that very kind of earthly and very physical that uh, would, would stand out a lot more to, uh, to Greek thinkers. So in, in, in Greek thinking, you know, this, this is not what a spiritual being should be doing at all. They should be trying to get farther and farther away from being contaminated by matter. But John's actually doing the opposite here. You know, it's Jesus' glory that's revealed in his taking on of flesh. Um, exactly the opposite of the way that any Greek thinker would, would think. Um, and you, what, what is, is going on is you know, the, the, the most full revelation that we were given of Jesus Christ's glory is not you know, his power to create or you know, his, his power to control the events of history but it's his love and his grace in taking on flesh and, and dying for sin on the cross, ultimately. And the, I think that's what John is at least hinting at right here. We, we've seen Jesus Christ's glory in, in taking on flesh, not that you know, this would be you know, something that a God would never stoop to do, but God is more glorious because God did stoop to do this. The next word that's important is dwelt. I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on this word. Uh, this is another word that, uh, there's actually a perfectly good word in Greek that would, it would translate very nicely as dwelt. John does not use that here. What he uses is a word that means pitched his tent. And if you kind of go back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, th that Greek word is used for the tabernacle. And so I think the best translation of this would be, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is very deliberately pointing us to the tabernacle and the temple. Um, and so I, I would like to spend a little bit of time on this because this is going to be another significant theme in the Gospel of John. John, I would argue, uh, I know some in here would respectfully disagree with me, was probably written well after the destruction of the temple. And John is pointing his, uh, his readers to the fact that we don't need a physical temple in Jerusalem any longer. We have a, a much greater spiritual temple. We have the reality that the shadow, or the temple is just a shadow and a type of in Jesus Christ. And so I, I would like to look it, it, at you know, what the temple was to Israel and how Jesus Christ is, is much more than that. And uh, just... In, in the interest of honesty, I'm kind of taking a lot of these ideas from a commentary, really a series of sermons on the Gospel of John by James Boyce. So that, that's where uh, this particular material is being drawn from.
but the tabernacle was uh, at the center of Israel's camp. Of course, uh, in Christianity, the, the tabernacle would be you know, what Christianity is completely built around. Christ is central uh, to Christianity, even more so than the tabernacle would be at the center of Israel's camp. The tabernacle was a place that housed the stone tablets of the law that uh, were given to Moses. They were preserved there. Um, Jesus Christ not only fulfills the law, but he puts the law in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, so the, the law isn't kind of separate from us in a building that only the high priest can access. The law is you know, written on our hearts and minds by Jesus Christ. Yes? I don't have an opinion on that. Um, I, I don't think we have much good evidence to say whether 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written before or after the Gospel of John was written. But both of the... Yes. Um, There, there is one point in the Gospel of John where John talks about a geographical place, the Pool of Siloam, and he talks about it you know, in the present tense as if it were still there. And so you, you certainly could use that to argue for an early date uh, for the Gospel of John, which would be before 70. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there isn't much very much to go on on when, when John was written. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and you know, it, it, it's not known because it isn't that important. <laughs> the the main function of the tabernacle as, as well as the temple is that it's the dwelling place of God. But you know, th- this verse comes right out and says that you know, Jesus is dwelling with his people in a way that's far closer than you know, God dwelling with his people through the, the tabernacle. So you know, Jesus is, is very much a, a better replacement for the temple uh, in, in the way that he dwells with his people. Yeah. The tabernacle was a place of revelation. Uh, it's called the tent of meeting. It was where Moses would would meet with God. Um, you know, Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. We're going to see that at the at the end of the prologue, stated very very clearly. But uh, the clearest picture we have of who God is is revealed through Jesus Christ. It was a place where the, where sacrifices were made. Jesus is the perfect uh, reality that the sacrificial system points to. Uh, it's the single place where God's people worshipped, and they worshipped through priestly inter- intermediaries. We worship God through Jesus Christ, and uh, we can worship anywhere, where, 
directly, not through an intermediary uh, because of Jesus Christ, or we could worship through the intermediary of Jesus Christ, maybe to think about it a little bit differently. Um, We have seen his glory. Uh, This is another one, of course, that we could spend a significant amount of time on. Glory is a significant theme in, in, in John. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but I want to say a little bit about what, what John is, is getting at here. Most commentators say that John is at least interacting with a passage in Exodus that, if you know Exodus, is, is going to be familiar to you. Uh, shortly after the Ten Commandments were received, Moses asked God to, to show him his glory. And God told Moses, you know, no man can see me and live but he did allow Moses to kind of hide in the cleft of a rock and God kind of covered that and he briefly passed. And so Moses got a very slight glimpse of the glory of God's backside. Um, so that, that's something that John is probably at least wanting us uh, to think about here. And so one of the things that the, the glory might refer to is the physical glory that God has that John got just the, the smallest glimpse of or sorry, that, uh, that Moses saw just the smallest glimpse of, but I don't think that's the main thing that, that John is getting at with, uh, with Jesus' glory. Um, I, I had not thought about that, but I think you're, 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 you could very well be right. Um, that, that's, that, that certainly sounds correct. You know, John is, one of the things that John is doing is he's being very careful in, in the, this opening prologue to really lay out um, what we now would refer to as the, the doctrine of the Trinity in a very careful and nuanced way. And you know, you're, you're certainly right that if you, he became flesh, he, he's not wanting to say that you know, Jesus... Um, you know, lost any of the uh, the deity that he had prior to the incarnation. He didn't lose anything in, in taking on flesh. He added flesh to who he is. Um, and so you're emphasizing that you know, his glory is still every bit as much as it was before uh, would kind of help John to, to guide people to avoiding that error. So I, I think I think that could be part of what's going on here, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, but anyway, kind of getting back to the idea, what, what is this glory? Um, I don't think John is referring primarily or even particularly to you know, how glorious God would be if you could kind of visibly see him, as Moses got just the, the smallest glimpse of. One of the reasons I would say that is that the transfiguration is not present in the Gospel of John. It's present in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's not in John. And if John were trying to make that point, he would probably have the transfiguration in there. Um, you, John does talk about Jesus' glory later on in the Gospel. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of the, the instances, but let me kind of give you two of them. 
in a week, maybe two, probably one week, when we get to the, the wedding at, feast at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, uh, John kind of summarizes that. You know, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, no one saw anything of the glory of God visibly there. Jesus was a regular-looking person uh, in, in that event. We have no, no hints otherwise. But his glory is seen uh, by, by what he did. And uh, kind of in reference uh, to the cross, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so it's the actions of Jesus Christ that I think that, that point to the glory that, that John is really getting at in, in this statement. Another reason that I would say that is you know, if we look to how the Apostle Paul uh, sees that. Let me kind of read this from Corinthians. And we all with unveiled face. So Paul is also interacting with this passage from uh, Exodus 33 and, and 34. Because uh, Moses would put on a veil to, to cover that, that glory. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is really what Tim's sermon series is about. How we're able to look at, at what God has revealed through Jesus Christ, and we're being transformed by that. Uh, sorry to summarize your sermon series for you, but <laughs> that, that, that's very much what, what Tim has been... <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> that, um, that's what, 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 what Tim has been uh, pointing us uh, to week after week. The, the, my point here is this is a glory that we can see. We're not going to get a glimpse of God's uh, kind of visible glory uh, in our lifetimes, presumably. But we can see God's glory, uh, the glory that, that John is referring to. And that glory does transform us. The next verse I'd, I'd like to kind of highlight. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That might kind of sound like a contrast where John is saying that you know, with Moses, we, we got this terrible thing called the law, but we get something good with Jesus Christ. And that certainly isn't the case. Um, what, what John is saying is that we get something good through Moses, but we get something much better through Jesus Christ. Um, we, we know that the law is good. And we know that God has revealed truth through the, through the law. So if you're going to use this verse to, to say, and some people will, will use this verse incorrectly to, to say that the law is, is negative somehow, you would also have to say that the law is not true. Um, because uh, you know, uh, you know, if, if grace came through Jesus Christ, truth also comes through Jesus Christ. And so it, it would be very difficult to say that we don't get some truth through the law. Um, and in the same way, we get some grace through the law, but we see it far more clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we get it beyond measure. Um, whereas in the law, you know, grace and truth were, were measured in some way. So, verse 18 uh, you know, suggests that we see God through Christ in a way that no one has really seen him before. So how is this vision you know, better than Moses, who, who got a glimpse of God? Or Isaiah, who saw a, a vision of God in the temple? Um, most, I think, good Reformed scholars would say that he actually saw Jesus Christ, uh, pre-incarnate in, in, the, 
in the temple in, in Isaiah 6. But you know, John here is saying that no one has ever seen God. You know, the only God is the Father's side. But he, that, that is Jesus, or the word has made him known. Um, <clears throat> no one has seen God in any full sense, because no one can see God and live. Um, Jesus, you know, you know, Moses got this very brief glimpse of God. Isaiah saw God in some sense in a vision, but not, not visibly. Jesus, though, is ever present with the Father. He hasn't just seen God briefly. He's sat with him throughout eternity. He knows God perfectly. Um, and be, because of that, Jesus is the only one that can really authoritatively declare uh, anything about God. In, anyone else can only take what God chooses to reveal and declare that in an imperfect way. Jesus is kind of perfectly de declaring that, and I think that's what John is getting at. You know, no one has ever seen God. The only one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Greek word made him known is the word that we get exegete from. Exegete is a word that means to kind of take a passage of Scripture and draw the meaning out of it. And so what, what John is saying is that Jesus exegetes God. He draws the meaning out of uh, who God is and, and explains him to us. E-X-E-G-E-T-E. Uh, e -E -E. Yeah, just check and see how much time I've got. Okay. Uh, I, I would like to try to finish up the, the, um, the prologue at least, so I, I'll try to go through this last little bit quick, quickly. Um, I want to step back and kind of look at 14 through 18 as a whole. Because what we're really seeing here is that John has made a statement you know, about who Jesus Christ is in the prologue, and he's going to back that up with witnesses. And so there's different witnesses that we can see in, in 14 through 18. One of the witnesses are the apostles. Um, they, they spent three years ministering with Jesus Christ. They, they see God, um, or they, they see Jesus Christ. They're a witness to that. Another witness that's very specifically brought out at two different occasions in the prologue is John the Baptist. We're going to look at his witness next. Uh, that, that's the next section of the, the Gospel of John. But these are kind of two witnesses that attest to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Grace and truth. You, Jews found the testimony of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, to be very persuasive. They based their lives on it. Uh, they were pers persuaded by that. Now we've got a greater, richer, fuller revelation. Um, so if the Old Testament is believable, the new revelation should be far, far more persuasive in, in, in its plausibility. Um, John isn't saying that there's anything wrong with the previous revelation, but he, he is saying that the new revelation is a far greater revelation and a revelation that should be much more persuasive than the one that, that came before it. We see more of God's love, more, more of God's grace, his mercy, his goodness, his wisdom than we could before. Grace and truth are both in the Old Testament, but they're profoundly expanded in the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we see God in a clearer, richer, deeper, more glorious light than we saw him before, um, if we see that better through Jesus Christ, that testifies that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be and who the, um, the opening verses of, of John state that Jesus Christ is. We have more. We have the testimony of experience, or we have transformed lives. 
This is probably the weakest of the points that John is going to be bringing out in, in these verses. But it still should be enough to at least make us investigate this further. If we see people's lives who have been completely changed, if you look at the apostles, they were regular people. They weren't educated religious scholars, but they were fishermen. They spent three years with Jesus and they turned the world upside down. Their lives were completely changed. And all but one of them, church history tells us, died for that testimony. They would not have done that if um, their, their lives were completely changed by their experience with Jesus Christ. And we see lives that are changed by Jesus Christ and his testimony as well. Um, that doesn't probably conclusively prove it on its own, but it should at least accomplish what John wants it to here. He wants, to, uh, wants us to investigate who Jesus Christ is further in the rest of the gospel. Finally, and I think most importantly, we have the testimony of Jesus himself. One of the things I have just come to really love about the Gospel of John is that we see Jesus teaching in a much uh, different way than we, we see in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus argues back and forth. He explains things in, in length. We don't just get kind of parables and little snippets. We get much longer discourses. Uh, and finally, we get you know, the longest discourse that we have from Jesus in the, the upper room uh, in the second half of John, which we'll probably get to in the 2030s. Um, <clears throat> so we, uh, we, we, we see Jesus revealed in this gospel, and, and that's the testimony that's self-authenticating. If you hear the words of Jesus, you, uh, you, you, you see in them someone that can only be God. One way that you can kind of see this stated elsewhere in the, the Old Testament, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. Um, Jesus is kind of the ultimate revelation of God. and We're, we're, we're going to be, be seeing that. I'd, I'd like to kind of close with one more uh, uh, statement. Um, you, given what, what's stated about Jesus Christ here as the source of revelation, is it reasonable to expect further revelation? And I would say no. You, you can't have a better revelation of God than we, we've received through Jesus Christ. And so the idea that you know, the angel Moroni or Muhammad would have some other testimony uh, that would supersede you know, the testimony that God the ultimate testimony of God through Jesus Christ is completely absurd. Um, we, we, we have no basis to expect any further revelation given how great the revelation of Jesus Christ is. And we're, we're going to see that as we get into John. So we did manage to finish at least the, the, uh, the opening prologue of John. We'll get started on the gospel itself, and we will pick up speed next week. Thanks. <laughs>